Well, that was a joy to sing that. (laughs) How thankful we are for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's uh, turn now to uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. And uh, let's, before we read, let's, let's pray again. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you again for your word. And thank you for the help of your Holy Spirit. And may he shed light on all that we see in the pages of Scripture. And may we find that it is applied to our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul is uh, speaking about uh, the faith of Abraham. And uh, in verse 18, uh, Paul says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully committed, uh, convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith is counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So everybody believes that, you know, ask anybody, uh, and every, anybody believes that, everybody believes that faith has got something to do with religion. Is that an obvious statement? Faith has got something to do with religion. Uh, some people believe that they have faith, but without religion. Uh, they won't align themselves necessarily with a, a formal religion, but they may think of themselves as spiritual and having a kind of faith. Uh, this is the world we live in. And so people talk about faith as a, a personal possession. They talk about my faith, uh, your faith. And uh, I have found, I found on occasions people have been quite protective of that faith. They have said, my faith is private and it's personal to me and uh, I don't want to bring it out and show it to anyone. <laughs> um, it's personal faith. Uh, let's just keep it between me and God. But nobody can deny that uh, faith is something that is, is owned, experienced, and exercised uh, in, the, in the world. Now we've been seeing, as we've looked at <coughs> uh, Romans chapter 4... Uh, that, that faith is instrumental in obtaining righteousness. Um, indeed, it's the witness of the New Testament, it's, uh, and indeed the Old Testament. Faith is, is vital to the Christian life. You, you can't be a Christian without faith. And in fact, 
You know, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But what is Christian faith? Is it the same as all other experiences of faith that people talk about? Is the faith that you have the same as the faith that someone may have in crystals or human nature or faith in a political party or an ideology or whatever? Is that the same thing? Does it matter what your faith is in? Or is it just enough to have a feeling of faith? These are important questions uh, that we need to be clear about as we uh, uh, read Paul here. Uh, You see, we could have read what he has said so far in verses 1 to 17 and say that, well, he must be talking about what I have. So I've got faith. Um, He must be talking about what I have. But if you do that, you won't have answered the question, is what I have the same as what Paul is talking about? Do you have saving, justifying faith? And once you know what it is, do you have it? See, not all faiths are saving, justifying faiths. And that's what Paul, I think, is going to help us with here in these last few verses of uh, chapter 4. So far he's been uh, taking his readers, a large number of whom would have been Jews, uh, uh, he's been taking them back to Abraham. And uh, the Jews in the congregation of, of Rome would have considered Abraham to be their father, uh, their ancestor. And what Paul has done is he has shown that all, all the things that they thought to be vital, they once thought to be vital to ob- obtaining all that God, was, uh, God had promised, are not so vital after all. Um, whether it be religious hard work, circumcision, whether you're squeaky clean and keeping the law, uh, as, you th- as you see it, all of these are, fall short. And so Paul has been taking on on a journey to show the inadequacy of their their hard work of following the law in various ways. And he has shown, on the other hand, that that he's shown the truth of this by turning to Abraham and, and showing that he didn't have any of these things before he had faith in God's promises. That that was all that he had at one point in his life. And that that it was by that faith that he obtained righteousness from God. God counted that faith to him as righteousness. Not that faith itself was a work meriting that righteousness. But through faith, by God's grace, God was able to call him righteous. Because he trusted in the promises of God. And we know as we look at uh, Abraham's life, he is far from squeaky clean. So many sins that you can read of from Genesis 12 onwards through to 25 or so. 
So many sins that he committed. And yet he is described as righteous in the sight of God because he had faith in God. And now he's going to show what that faith looked like. What kind of faith was it? And what were the effects in his life? Why does, and so why does it work, this faith work, rather than all those other things that, upon which the Jewish Christians in Rome may have one, at one time based their lives upon? Indeed, many, what many people today base their lives on, their good works, their sense of achievement in life, uh, and so on. So here's the first thing. What does this faith look like? What does Christian faith actually look like? And to help us, Paul describes Abraham's faith here in verses 18 to 21. And you'll notice that there are two words that characterize Abraham's faith. Hope and glory. Hope and glory. That may spark off a tune in your mind, but put that tune to one side. Land of hope and glory. And and think about Abraham and his hope and his looking forward to glory. So Abraham had hope. Let's look look at these two things in sequence. And this is how Paul describes this, this hope. Verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So what happened to Abraham? Well, Abraham heard God speaking to him. And God made promises to him. And you can follow the story of God speaking to Abraham all the way through from Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham came to believe what God had told him. Now, was that an easy thing for Abraham to do? You see, the first step in that promise that God made to Abraham was that he would have children. He would have a son. But at the time, everything strongly suggested that this was impossible. Verse 19 tells us that he was 100 years old, that he was as good as dead. But the 100 years old is actually the the end of a long story. You see, the first time the promise comes to Abraham is in Genesis 12 verse 4. And at that age, he's 75. And he is told that he will have a seed. He will have offspring. And he knows that at age 75, he's he's not likely to be producing any children. And Sarah doesn't seem to have uh, have the ability. She's barren. Her womb doesn't seem to work. And so Abraham has an uphill battle to believe that promise that God has given, given him. And there's something of a misfire 11 years later. Because Abraham says, well, maybe God meant that I should, I should have a child by my servant, Hagar. And so, you know, he has a child with Hagar. Ishmael is born. And God has to say, no, this is not how my promise is going to be made. Sarah is going to have your child. 86. Time's pressing on. And it wasn't until you know, Genesis 17 is now when 
Abraham is 99. He finally he receives a, a, a reiteration of the promise and everyone is, all the males are circumcised in his house as, a, as a, an act of covenant making by God to, to prove that he, he really means what he's saying and, and therefore Ishmael is circumcised but there's still no son from Sarah's womb. But then a year later, a child is born uh, to Sarah. Hundred years old, Abraham was. An amazing journey of 20, 25 years. Holding on to a promise that God had given him 25 years ago. Think what you were doing 25 years ago. How long would you hold on to a promise for that? Some of you don't know how, how to do that. <laughs> You're too young. 25 years ago is a long, long time ago. And Abraham had to learn to believe God, even though, uh, according to all his senses, he could not understand how God was going to do this. Physically, it was impossible. Yet he believed it. And the promise of God, the repeated promise of God, fueled his hope. And so verse 18 says, in hope he believed against hope. There are certain kinds of hope that fail you. And it would be easy for for Abraham's hope to have failed if he just based it on what he saw and he knew. But as he looked at God's promises, he was able to hope beyond hope that God would do as he promised. This is, it teaches us something really important about Christian hope. Uh, it's not a vague, wishful thinking. Uh, I still have this wishful thinking that Scotland will one day qualify for the World Cup and win it. But, you know, I know it's never going to happen. It's probably never going to happen. <laughs> not in my lifetime, I don't think. But, you know, that's one kind of hope, isn't it? Oh, I hope Scotland will win. And they had a couple of amazing victories last week, but, you know, um, it's maybe not enough. They do lack a bit of quality, I have to admit. But Christian hope is completely different. Christian hope is the hope of Abraham. It is the absolute certainty that when God has said something, He means it. He doesn't forget. And he's going to carry it out as he said he would. So another example of this. uh, Noah. Uh, Noah was told uh, by God that there was going to be a flood and they used to build a great boat. Remember we looked at that just a few weeks ago. uh, Genesis chapter 6 onwards. And, uh, you know, Noah sets about, you know, in the middle of nowhere, in a landscape, starts building a boat. Why would you do that? Uh, but God said, build a boat, because I'm bringing judgment. And he builds this ark. And you can just imagine all the people looking around and, and seeing Noah building this ark, and, and all the mockery that's going to come, you, you fool, you idiot, you, you're just crazy. What are you doing? You're wasting all your time and all your resources in building this thing. And, but the difference is, These people didn't believe God. They didn't believe what Noah would be saying to them. 
But Noah did. Noah believed. And so he acted and believed. And Noah, of course, was proved right. And everyone else was wiped out under the judgment of God. Faith, you see, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This is true faith, uh, which has a future hope. And hope looks through the lens of God's promises and sees what is promised and believes it. And then acts in accordance with that promise. That's quite a step, actually. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe the promises of God. It's quite another thing to begin to act because you believe what God has said. It's probably the heart of what we're saying on Sunday mornings. You know, this morning we were thinking about, I believe in the communion of saints. It's one thing to say that. It's quite another thing to act as though you believe it. And to act because God is, is doing an amazing thing amongst his people. And that God promises to bless it. And you can always tell when somebody truly believes something by how they live. You know, the litmus test of whether somebody believes is not whether they just talk a lot about it, but how they live. You know, doctrine, teaching, things you believe always comes out through your fingertips, as somebody once said. It's what you do that shows what you believe, what you really believe. And notice here that Abraham's faith was not blind faith. It was faith in God whom he had come to trust through all the years of his life. Uh, In fact, James calls Abraham a friend of God, James 2.23. Very unusual thing for the Bible to say about anyone. Abraham was a friend of God. He knew that God would keep his promises, and so he had hope. So faith has this this certain hope that whatever God promises, he will do, no matter what other voices say or may be speaking into our lives. Uh, It always has hope beyond what we see. And that's true for us as well as Christians. We need to hear what God is saying to us uh, and, and trust in what he has said. And so where do we find God speaking to us? Well, of course, it's in the pages of Holy Scripture. This is where God has left his depository of truth. This is, where, this is what the Holy Spirit takes and he applies to our lives and our hearts. As we avail ourselves of the Word of God, when we hear it preached and we hear it discussed and explained and we read it ourselves, God speaks to us. And so the sign of real Justifying faith comes when a person is eager to read and inwardly digest the words of Scripture. Just think of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. Uh, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, uh, quite a remarkable statement. Your words, he says, were found and I ate them, says Jeremiah. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I took them in. I fed on them. And I grew And they were the joy and delight of my heart. And so you see, in in real justifying faith, when you see that happening to someone, there is a real hunger and an eagerness to receive the word so that I can rest my hope upon the things that God has promised in his word. 
Now, there is a danger, of course, that, that if we're not clear where it is that God speaks to us, we might be tempted to think that he speaks in places where, in fact, he doesn't speak. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples. Number one, um, thinking that God speaks in the events of my life. Uh, in other words, trying to interpret providence as God saying something to me. You know, providence. There are certain events in your life you are beyond your control. And things happen, but none of that's outside of God's purposes. But we make a mistake if we think we can somehow read the circumstances of our lives and say, well, I think God is saying this. The problem is that God never has never said that he speaks his promises that way or gives assurance that way. It's never said anywhere. Not anywhere that I can find. And instead, what he's given us is his written word uh, to trust that. And so we need to, to rest on that. The same argument might be made for feelings or impulses. Uh, is the spirit, therefore, saying something to me? You know, I have a feeling about something. I need to go and do this or do that. Is the spirit saying something to me? But again, the Bible doesn't really give an indication that this is how he wants to communicate with us. Rather, we are to rest our hope and have our faith built on what God has clearly and actually said and rest on that. And I, don't, I don't dismiss that God in his sovereign purposes sometimes moves us through our emotions and feelings to do things. But we are not able to say definitively, God is saying something to us in it. So we need to rest in God's word. So this is the first characteristic of, of genuine faith. Hope founded upon the promises of God, even when all around you tempt you to believe otherwise. The second characteristic of this real saving faith is, is a, f- a focus on the glory of God. Uh, second of these two things, hope and then glory. Uh, here we see it in verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now this idea of giving glory to God is no mere mechanical act of worship. For the simple reason that God doesn't just want a mere mechanical act of worship. He wants all of you and all of your life. He wants all of you to give glory to God. And this, is, this becomes clear uh, in verses like Isaiah 29, 13. This people, says Isaiah, draw near with their... Uh, God says through Isaiah, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And this is, of course, something that Jesus takes up in his ministry. Uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, that their hearts are far away from God, even though they may be acting out all the right things in terms of public worship and so on. But when Paul records here that Abraham gave glory to God, you know that the whole man, the whole Abraham, was giving glory to God. Abraham received the promises of God. He believed them, and then he acted 
to obey the Lord in his commands. And on the inside, in his heart of hearts, he longed for the glory of God as he did so. No mechanical obedience here. He longed for the glory of God in all that he sought to do. He wanted God to be honored and to be praised by others. And truly, uh, Abraham was a man who had come to know the great truth. He'd know, he obviously learned his shorter catechism question one. <laughs> Not really. But what is the chief end of man? What is your chief end? What is your chief purpose in life? You know, don't you? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Abraham knew that. He didn't know it as the shorter catechism, of course, but, you know, (laughs) he knew the truth of it. And, you know, the glory of God is so foundational to Christian life. uh, Ian Hamilton, who's one of our uh, retired, though if you look at his life, he doesn't act like he's retired. He's extremely busy. Uh, He's one of our retired ministers in the presbytery. And uh, I heard him at a conference once speaking, and he said this, phrase that's that's stuck with me. Uh, He says, God's glory is the foundation that gives birth to my pleasure. God's glory is the foundation that gives birth to my pleasure. You see, you'll never really enjoy God until you have the spirit-worked longing in your heart for God's glory. He'll always seem like he's putting burdens on your shoulders. That it's a problem to follow Jesus Christ. That it's a problem to come to worship. That it's a problem to obey and hear the promises of God. And trust the promises of God. But when you seek his glory, then true pleasure and joy can come in his presence. In fact, I don't... I don't believe that if you have living justifying, I don't believe you have living and justifying faith unless you have this inbuilt hunger for the glory of God. And if you don't have this kind of faith, you're not justified and you're still in your sin. So this this evening, can I ask you this question? Do you have this justifying faith? It has this kind of hope and this desire for the glory of God. Is your life being consciously built on the hope that comes from God's promises? Do you have a longing that comes in your hearts for the glory of God? And friends, don't, please don't sit back and think to yourself, well, maybe. Uh, don't rest there. I'm inviting you to do a bit of self-examination this, this afternoon. As you sit under the word of God, As God superintends this moment by his spirit, as he probes and prods your heart like an expert physician, do you have this living faith in the God of heaven and earth? Justifying faith. Let's move on. Here's another question. Why why does that, that kind of faith work? Why does that kind of faith matter? that kind of justifying faith.
Paul is concerned here that his readers see what he, that what he is describing wasn't just for Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, but actually it's for all who have uh, the same faith. So, so verse 23 says this, um, but the, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It would be counted, uh, well, I'll stop there for a second. Uh, then, he, but then he goes on to say something really interesting in the rest of the verse. Um, it'd be better if I was uh, clear in my notes here, but my apologies for stumbling a little bit. But let me uh, just read that again. Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And there's two things about this that, that we need to pay attention to. Firstly, that God, uh, the God he is talking about that we believe in is the same God that Abraham believed in. And that's why Abraham matters so much to us. Because the God is the same. And in this respect, the faith of the New Testament Christian is the same as Old Testament Abraham. We've made that point already uh, in previous weeks. But there is a vital difference. God is now the God who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Abraham didn't know that, but now we do know that. So why does, why does Paul throw this... Uh, this in here at this point, this idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. Because, because the promises that were given to Abraham in the book of Genesis find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That's the whole point. It's not that the promises given to Abraham are different from the promises that we find are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Actually, what, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises given to Abraham. And Jesus is the seed who would come in the direct line from Abraham. Not only would God be able, be able to produce a son, Isaac, from the tired old bodies of Abraham and Sarah, but also would come the seed one day, the seed, Jesus Christ, through whom all the promises will find their ultimate fulfillment. And Abraham would indeed become a blessing to the nations. That's one of the promises given to him. But ultimately, would only be fulfilled through Jesus Christ and the preaching of Jesus Christ to the world. So as we stand back for a minute and just survey this big picture, why does it matter that Jesus is the seed? And why does the faith that we've been describing really matter? Especially when we remember that Faith has itself no intrinsic moral value. How does faith actually work? Well, it's here in this final verse, verse 25. It's Jesus Christ who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was handed over to be what is described in 325 as a propitiation by his blood. That he would take away the wrath of God by his blood. And that in his death, he would deal with our unrighteousness. And so through him, we would receive a righteousness that is not our own. But that's not all. He goes on to say he was raised to life for our justification. In other words, not only was our sin dealt with, 
But when Jesus rose to life, we were declared to be righteous in Christ by that faith in him. You see, that's how faith does anything. Only as it is, has Jesus Christ as its object. Not because of it, it does anything in itself. It has no intrinsic moral virtue. But faith sets its hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the means by which our unrighteousness is dealt with. And our faith is in not a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus. What faith, and that's that's what Paul is going to speak about later in his letter, that this faith unites us in an unbreakable bond with Christ, with the living Jesus. It's not faith that matters. It's the one in whom you put your faith. It is Jesus himself. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you receive Christ. It is Christ who saves you. It is Jesus who saves you. And that's why faith matters. And this is the great glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that we get some paper certificate saying clean, washed, baptized, or anything like that. But we get the Son of God in our lives upon whom all our hope is built, whom we love and long to see glorified, and whom we will enjoy forever, Jesus Christ. So I just ask you again as we finish, do you have that kind of faith, that kind of saving faith, that now has Jesus as its focus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the provision of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the faith that we have is the same faith that we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, all of these great figures that appear in the Bible and trust in the living God. And their faith is not in themselves, or even in the fact that they had faith, but in the promises of God, which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now today we have the privilege and benefit to be able to look back and see all that Christ has done, and for our faith to be single-mindedly in him with great clarity. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would have that kind of saving faith by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.